And this is a section of scripture that many are familiar with, yet is very easy to be overlooked. And it's amazing now to be able to take the whole weight of the book of Matthew and sort of focus it on this one target, and it's called the Great Commission. And the Great Commission, then, is something that we find given to believers. This is what believers are to do with what Jesus did. And as we look at the weight of the whole Bible, we find this, this message that God is constantly wanting to reach us with his message. And so we, we see all the way, if we can take all the way back from the Old Testament, and we see God's desire to reach people with this message, with his will and his way. And we see the prophets sent, and we see the nation of Israel developed. We see through all the typology with the things that the children of Israel were to do and the way they were to worship and the way they were to honor God and the temple and the tabernacle and the things in the temple and the things in the tabernacle and the sacrifices that they would make. And, and, and all these things were, were ways that God was trying to communicate his message to us and it, that all comes to a head with the Great Commission. It all comes to a head where we are in our scripture, where, where Jesus fulfilling all those things I just mentioned and coming, as John the Baptist would say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Why did he say that? Jesus wasn't actually a lamb, but Jesus was fulfilling all the types of the sacrificial lamb, the Passover lamb, and, and all these burnt offerings, and, and here Jesus was it. And so now we have this, this command that the scriptures have, have brought to us, this word of God, but now it's on our plate. Now it's our thing, this great commission. And we get scriptures like Peter would say, uh, someone who the great commission got a hold of him. And Peter would say things like, God is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness, but, he's, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so Peter gave his life for that message. The disciples gave their life for that message because it was so important. And so this morning, the Great Commission comes back to our awareness. And this is really, as believers, for true believers, this is what we actually do. This is what changes and this what becomes us and so as we've been going through the book of Matthew we've seen the birth of Christ we've seen the growth and development of his life we've seen the the baptism of Jesus we've seen the temptation of Jesus we have seen the um, 
Sermon on the Mount. And then we have seen all these miracles and all these teachings and all of these uh, discussions about who he is and, and is this the Messiah. And the reason that they're saying that is because they knew that the scriptures had foretold that the Messiah, this one person who would be God in the flesh, would actually come to take away the sins of the world. And so in the book of Matthew, Jesus is fulfilling that. And Matthew is trying to get us to understand that he is that guy. And he's went to great lengths to do that. And we've been looking at that. And so the thing is now is, is what do we do with all this? Over the past few weeks, we've seen Jesus die on the cross and we've we've looked at that in detail and then we saw him buried and then we just saw him raise again from the dead and that's just where we left off but the thing is is what do we do with all that and that's where things begin to really make a difference in our lives so let's take a look at this in Matthew chapter 28 And we're going to start in verse 16. I'm going to read through it, and then we're going to look at it a little bit bit closer, or maybe a lot of bit. So in verse 16, Matthew 28. Then the eleven disciples, they went away into Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, But some doubted. And Jesus came and he spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So that's the message. So that's the commandment. That's the charge. And so to to not get this right is to really have a, a completely skewed view of Christianity. Because in essence, this is Christianity. This is what it is. Nothing more, nothing less. And why this is so important is because Christianity can be so distorted and diluted that it doesn't even make sense as to what the Bible says about what Christianity is to be. But this is it. And you'll notice in the text, uh, right off the bat, in verse 16, that the 11 disciples... They went away into Galilee. So why did they do that? Well, Jesus had been telling them that he was going to die and raise again, but they had not really tracked too well. They didn't want him to die. They couldn't get the idea of him dying out of their mind. They didn't want that. And so it didn't really make sense to them. And yet Jesus had had made this appointment. And think about the the foreknowledge that Jesus had that that he was going to die, but he told him, don't worry, I'll meet you in Galilee after I die. Because Jesus had been predicting 
that he is going to raise again from the dead. But, but see, that wasn't, that, that wasn't the end then. So now there's this new thing happening with a resurrected Christ. So now this new thing that's happening is, is a new thing that had been predicted where the Messiah would come. And when he would die and raise again, he would open up this whole new covenant. And so Jesus is now going to begin this resurrection ministry, if you will. And so we had seen in Matthew chapter 26, verse 32, that he says, after I've been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. And then after he was raised, we saw in Matthew 28, 7, we saw the angel said to the women, he is going before you to Galilee. There you'll see him. And then in Matthew 28, 10, Jesus told, Jesus himself told the women, don't be afraid and go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee. So here it is in verse 16. So now the 11 disciples, they went to Galilee and it says that they went to a mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. So we don't really know exactly where this is. Um, we're not told that, but we know it's in the, the region of of Galilee, by the Sea of Galilee. We know this is a place where Jesus spent the majority of his ministry ministering around the Sea of Galilee. We know that Jesus, his headquarters was in Capernaum in Galilee, in the area of Galilee. And so um, this is where much of uh, what we read about in the Gospels took place. And so you may remember that Jesus and his disciples went from Galilee to Jerusalem for the purpose of the Passover because the Jews in the surrounding areas would be required to go to Jerusalem during the Passover to worship Jesus. And of course, as Jesus made his journey there, this would be him fulfilling that he was the Passover lamb that would take away the sins of the world. And he did that on Passover, of course. But now we see this appointment that Jesus has. But what's interesting is Jesus tells them to go there, but they weren't really told much after that. They weren't told, like, go here, and then we have a six-point plan that we're going to have, and, and if you go here, and then each person, you're going to have a ministry here, 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 here. But he just said, go and meet me. And I think that's important. Because in reality, that's how God works a lot in our life. He just says, Meet me. And we say, well, I want to know what's going to happen if I meet you. What do you mean, meet me? Well, if, if you, what's going to cost me? What are you going to make me do? Where are you going to send me? What are you, what are you going to make me say? And, and I just want to encourage you on this point. Just follow Jesus. Right? Don't have a pros and cons list. Just have a pro list. If God says it, just do it. Because this is setting them up, this, this attitude of availability and this attitude of willingness is set, setting them up to receive the message that God's going to give them. But you notice something, it says, when they saw him, this is the resurrected Jesus. So imagine this now, you, you get this scene in your head and the disciples had been following Jesus from afar off when he got to his most crucial point, right? Once they took him in the garden of Gethsemane 
and they took him to the, the temple area, and then they took him to Pilate's quarters, and, and then they took him around the areas of the temple where he would be going through these uh, trials. When they, when, when they did that, the disciples weren't around. They, they didn't want to have anything to do with this. And then when Jesus was on the cross, they weren't around, except for John. But they're they're following at a distance. They had distanced themselves because this this Jesus didn't fit their their mold. But see, things are different now. The game changer was that that Jesus is alive now. He was alive, he died, and then he's alive again. And he's in his glorified body. And so as this is is going on, and, and, and Jesus now is giving instructions as a resurrected Christ, what happens is now they're encountering the resurrected Jesus. And that, that's this poignant moment when it says that they saw him. So I just, I, I just think about that moment, what that would be, have been like, to see Jesus dead, to be so disappointed, to be so afraid, to think, well, they're going to do that to me if I make known that I'm a follower of Jesus. It was a big part of why Peter was denying Jesus. Like, I, I don't want to do what he's doing. But he's alive now. And I, I could just sense this, uh, and the message from the women that were there at the empty tomb first, and as they went and told the disciples and, and how excited they were and how they testified that he's alive, he's risen and of course, Peter and, and John, they run back to the tomb and, and they look in the tomb and he was alive. He wasn't there. He was alive. And, and so now they're like, oh man, what do we do now? Oh, remember he told us to go to Galilee. And, and this, uh, this journey to Galilee, it, it, you know, it wasn't a hop, skip, skip and a jump. It would take them a little while to get there. And I, I just think about that anticipation. He's alive. He is who he said he is. He did what he said he was going to do. And then they lay eyes on him. It says they saw him. The, the only real proper response to somebody who realize, realizes who he is is this. They worshiped him. And what that means is they now knew. They now knew he was God. They now knew that all this teaching a lot of it that they didn't understand sort of all came together now and made sense to them he's alive he's resurrected he's god what else are we to do let's worship him and this attitude follows a true encounter with jesus christ that's really my first point here in regards to the Great Commission, there's an encounter that we have with Jesus that necessitates our desire to share the gospel with people. And we see this all throughout the, the gospels and the uh, New Testament. We find that the, these encounters with Jesus do something that is so transformative to a person that what begins to be an integral part or the core of their very being is the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And because of this, we could also say that it's a good litmus test for us. It's a good test for us to see whether we are truly a born-again believer in Jesus Christ or if we are not by our desire to share the gospel with other people. See, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, it says that the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. And what that means is, is, is a good, this is why I say this is a good test, because if we're truly not born again, we're perishing. John 3, 16, right? God is not willing that any should perish, but all should have eternal life. But see, there are many people who are mistakenly thinking that they're truly born again. And you may say, well, how do you know that? And that's a good question. I know that because Matthew chapter 7 tells us that, that there are people that, many people, religious people, people who do religious things and do good works, that they will stand before God one day and he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. This is how we know. But a good litmus test is, is the gospel. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, to those who are perishing, so if you're not born again, if you're not forgiven of your sins, if you're not saved, then you're perishing. That's what the Bible says. And it says to those who are perishing, the gospel is foolishness to them. So you put that and start to frame that a little bit, and you think, well, somebody who says, well, I'm a Christian, and I'm a good person, and I'm that, therefore I'm good with God. Well, 1 Corinthians 1.18 tells us here's a real test. What does the gospel mean to you? Where does that fall in your order of priorities in your life? That's the true litmus test. If the gospel's foolishness to those who are perishing, then that means I don't, I don't really want to tell anybody about it. It's, it's not something that's worthy to share with. I'm embarrassed about it. Paul in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God to salvation. So why would I be embarrassed and ashamed about that? See, the, the gospel, is, it, 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 it's something that for a true believer in Jesus Christ becomes the core of who they are, becomes the core of what they do. And so, so Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 1.18, he, he goes on to say, not only is the gospel foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who believe, he says, it's the power of God to salvation. So you think about that, how's that test for you? So here's another possible way to look at it. So it, it's a, a way to indicate if we're truly born again or not. But if we truly are born again, it may be also a way to test if we're lukewarm. A sure way to get lukewarm is to get away from the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is the core of what we are. And there's uh, many suitors for us to have a, a sort of Christianity that is gutted of the gospel, but allows us to continue on in like Christian type of things. 
And we have to be careful about that. We have to be careful about when we get all wrapped up into worldly things. In fact, in Philippians 3, it says that those who are enemies of the cross, it says their mind is on earthly things. So the gospel is a good way to say, what are we really focused on? And it'll, it'll be demonstrated by its place it has in our life. Does that make sense? Because true salvation, like you can't see it, right? Like when somebody gets saved, they don't, you can't see them turning into something. So, and the Bible does tell us there are, are, are many who think they're saved, but they're really not. And it tells us, you know, what true salvation is. And it tells us what the true gospel is. But there is a lot of presuming, and this is something that troubles me deeply in our congregation, just for the fact that I, I don't want anybody to presume that they're saved when they're not. And that's why I want to be really clear about what the gospel is and what true salvation is. And that's why we all need to be truly honest about what we believe. Because we live in a day and age, and this is nothing new, but we live in a time where there are a lot of professing of faith, but faith that does not match up to what the Bible says. And that's the worst place to be in. The worst place to be in is to presume on your salvation, but have a salvation that's not biblical, but just think it's okay anyway. And not be honest in regards to the fact to say, you know what, I really don't believe in that. Do you know that's a better condition to be in? To be truthful about your state? It's better to just say, I don't believe that. Than it is to say, well, I kind of believe it, but I really just believe my own thing. And I want to fit my own thing into God's thing and make that work somehow. When you get into that place, you fall into the possible condition of being lukewarm and lukewarm means you're in a condition where you're not on fire for the Lord and you're so cold that you don't even realize that you need Christ desperately that's the most dangerous condition to be in but see it all starts with encountering Jesus, a true encounter with Jesus. And this true encounter with Jesus is an encounter that he wants to have with all of us. And that's why John 3, 16 says, I, I don't wish that any would perish. And that's why Peter says that, that God is long-suffering and wants everybody to come to repentance. So, so he, he's drawing everybody into this understanding. So it says, when they saw him, something about that interaction caused the disciples to worship him. That's the true encounter. But then it says, but some, some doubted. That's a little tagline on the end of it, some doubted. But I, I like that because it's honest. And, and that's all I could really ask, and that's all we should ever ask, is that we just are honest with our condition before God. Am I accepting of God the way he is revealed in the Bible? Am I accepting of his salvation the way that he has presented that to me? Or 
do I go to church and make myself feel better, but I'm not signing up for all that Jesus stuff, right? Christianity is all fun and games until it starts getting biblical. Then start stepping on toes. And Jesus does step on toes because he's looking to transform us and sanctify us and free us from ourself and our attachments to the world. So he says, but some doubted. So first off then, as we transition to this next little part, just understand that truly encountering Jesus is life-changing. Right? And it doesn't necessarily mean we're going to have a huge emotional experience or, you know, we're going to see, you know, light from heaven and everything. But it truly changes us, our encounter. It should affect us. It should affect our desires. It should affect our conduct. And if it doesn't, then that's something to be concerned about. But look at what he says in verse 18. So now remember, this is the resurrected Jesus in a meeting that he had planned before he died, and now he's after he's dead, and he's there doing exactly what he said he was going to do. All things are on schedule. All things are going according to plan. And then he says this. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. So his first words, the first words that we have recorded here in this meeting, this gospel great commission meeting, what he's, what he's saying is, I have all authority. And we think about that now as we kind of bring forward some of the things from the book of Matthew, that Jesus had authority over his death. Jesus had authority over his life. He had authority over the timing of everything. Jesus had authority over the, his resurrection. Jesus had authority over the demons. Jesus had authority over the natural conditions of the earth, over the winds, over the seas. Jesus had uh, authority over um, everything. That's what he's doing in his miracles, over disease and and all these things, Jesus was basically showing, I have authority over everything. So when he met this soldier, this centurion Roman soldier in Matthew chapter 8, this soldier had a, a sick servant and asked Jesus to heal his sick servant. And he said, Jesus, I don't want you necessarily to go to my house and do this. We don't know why, but that's where the servant was. And so this centurion officer, he said, you can just heal him from right here. You, you have authority. And he, he's saying it's because of his authority that he can heal him from a distance. Like he didn't have a special formula where he had to say like three Hail Marys and pour some oil on them and do some signs of the crosses or any of that because Jesus had all authority. And so this centurion soldier, he says, I have all these people that are underneath me and I tell them what to do and they do it. I tell them to come, they come. I tell them to go, they go. And he's saying, I have that authority. 
And, he, and he's saying that as someone on earth that has great power. But he's coming to Jesus recognizing that Jesus has a power greater than his power. Because he says, Jesus, you know the way I tell people what to do and they do it? He says, you can heal my servant from here because you have authority. And he says, I understand authority. And that authority allows me, because of my position and power, allows me to tell people what to do and they do it. But you have authority where you can tell sickness, death, and disease to go away, and it will. And what he was saying is that Jesus has all authority. And when Jesus saw that, he said he marveled at his faith. He had this amazing faith because he understood something about authority and the authority that Jesus had. So what Jesus now is telling his disciples, he's telling them this after he has exhibited and demonstrated his authority over death. Like death can't tell Jesus what to do. Jesus tells death what to do. So death is creeping in and Jesus is saying, go away. And you remember when Jesus says at the cross, we pointed this out many times, Jesus didn't just die because he ran out of breath. Jesus actually said, it's now time and I give you my spirit. He was full in control of that. And so now Jesus is telling his disciples, and do you think they might have needed this? This confidence, this confidence of the resurrected Jesus. And he's telling them, I have all authority. In other words, he's saying, I'm the king of kings. And I'm the Lord of Lords. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the true Alpha male. Jesus is it. And and he's telling them that because they needed that confidence to know that no authority on earth could stop them and tell them what to do. And as long as they were going in the Great Commission nothing would stop them from doing what God has called them to do. And so we live in a time where we're starting to feel, at least in our culture, people telling us, don't say those things. Don't do those things. Close your church, do this, do that. And what God is saying is no human has authority over what we do. He's saying, I am the authority over those things. And as long as you're in the way of the gospel, nobody can stop what you do. Now, why is that important? Well, it's, it Practically, it really gets into a lot of areas that we may be dealing with. So I was talking to somebody from our congregation this week. And this person had to go through bias sensitivity training at their school. And part of that training was that if you're a Christian, you're committing microaggressions against a person because you're you're telling them or you may say something about their lifestyle is wrong. And if you call a him a her or vice versa, they actually say you're committing sexual assault. This is how serious it's getting. But the, what's happening is the gospel is being undermined because it's, it's silencing or an attempt to silence people that need to repent of their sins so they can come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
But if, if, if Christians are going to be persecuted, arrested, and attacked for saying what the Bible says is wrong and, and preaching the gospel that you need to repent, and mind you, this all has to be out of love and a broken heart and a deep concern for people, but if we truly love people, we'll tell them the truth. But see, now this is starting to get where it's affecting where we work, it's affecting where we go to school, it's a affecting practical things of our life. And so what we need to know is that Jesus is our authority. And he's the one that has given us our marching orders, and we are never to stop doing that, no matter if a human government tells us to. But what this also suggests when Jesus says that I have all authority, it tells us that nothing will ever stop the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing will ever stop. And so we'd see, we've always seen throughout history attempts to stop, to shut up, to muzzle the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it, it can never happen. Jesus told Peter the gates of Hades would never stop the church of God. But mind you, it's the church that has this message. It's the church that is preaching the gospel. Because in the end times, when the actual church is out of here, there's going to be church still. Did you know that? There are churches today that are blessed and highly favored by human governments and organizations because they don't preach the truth. But there will be churches and there will be all-embracing, all-encompassing, coexisting, all is good, all religion is good. You believe what you want, I believe what you want. It's all the same thing. It will be that type of thing. But Jesus says, nothing will stop the true church. It will be persecuted. It always has been. But nothing will stop it. But you know what that always also tells us? It tells us that the church has been given the authority of Jesus Christ. And that means that you and I don't have to sell the gospel. You ever feel like that sometimes? Like, man, I have to present it so good and just really pound on this drum over and over again and, and really uh, have this slick presentation and really know all my apologetics and really have all the arguments down and all these things. And we don't need to know that. It doesn't hurt, but we just need to know the gospel. We need to know that Jesus died for our sins and rose again from the dead and all who believe in him would have eternal life. But see, there's authority in that message. That message carries weight, and it carries the weight of eternity, and it carries the stamp of approval of God himself. And so in verse 19, we see our next point here. And it's just two words. Go, therefore. So as Jesus has this, meeting they have this encounter with the resurrected Jesus and this encounter has changed them you can't unsee the resurrected Jesus 
And then Jesus tells them that I have all authority. And then he says, because of that, he says, go now. In other words, he's saying, because of that, go. And so this is actually the command that God gives us. And this is now the command that becomes a true believer's actual life. This is what our life becomes. It becomes a going. And, and there's an intentionality here, a purpose here. An intentionality and a purpose. This is not a passive thing. This is something where he's commanding us to go. This is something that is internal in a true believer of Jesus Christ that this message that is so powerful so envelops them that it becomes them. And because of that, then the things that we do are done in light of and in perspective of the gospel. So that doesn't necessarily mean we all go in the same way. It means that we all go with the same message in our own way. So we all tomorrow, we wake up Monday morning and we're all going our own way. We're all here right now, but we all go our way. We all have little places that God takes us and places us, conversations, people he puts in our life. And all of those things are with the understanding that they should be done in light of this message of going. And that does not mean that we can't have normal conversations with people, does not mean that we can't like normal things like music and sports and things like that. It just means that our purpose, the reason we're here as believers is to do the one thing that we can do now that we cannot do in heaven, and it's to go and make disciples. The only, if you're a believer, it's the only reason you're here still. It's to go and make disciples. So that's, this has to be our preoccupation. So whatever God's called us and gifted us to do practically on earth, great, do that well with the understanding that this is to glorify God and draw people to the eternal hope of Jesus Christ. I'm not going to have time this morning, but I want to encourage you to read 2 Corinthians chapter 17 through 21. And it talks about the, our life that has changed because of the gospel and now what we live for, it becomes our life. And so this go therefore, I just hope that you can have that etched in your mind that this is my life, this is my purpose. I hope that maybe if you've drifted away from this a little bit and um, maybe just gotten into other things and drifted away from other things, just Remember, this is at the core of our doing as believers, to go therefore. But then he tells us what to actually do right after that. And this is my fourth point. This is the work. So this is the work that we do. He says, go. So we have to have this willingness, this intention, 
this desire to go. And then as we go, he says, and make converts. Does your Bible say that? That was a check for you. You're supposed to check me. He doesn't say make converts. He says make disciples. And why am I making that distinction? Because what we're called to do is not just dropping quick gospel messages on people. That's part of it, but that's not the end of it. What we're called to do is is actually use our lives to go and affect other people's life by the power of God and by the transforming work of God in our own heart to go and cause people to follow Jesus, right? So there there could be a big distinction, and and that's important today too. It's important we make that distinction because it's, it's easy to throw out Christian stuff, Christian words, Christian church attendance. It's easy just to to do all these things, but really the issue is, are we a disciple of Jesus Christ? And a disciple means we're a believer and a learner. A believer and a learner. So uh, our life, this process of sanctification, which happens after justification, which means after we're saved, we begin this life of growing in Jesus. So what are we to say if if someone says they're a Christian, but they're not growing in Jesus? That's a question. Because what, what, what we're here commanded to is to make disciples, to make people who not only have received the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and have become born again believers, but but then they're now they're following him. They're learning, constantly learning of him. And so that's what our church is really designed to do is to make disciples. And that's why we have the word of God here. And that's why we teach the word of God. But that's also why the gospel is preached here. But we we need to understand that this is what we do. Right? We go and we make disciples. And I just want to point this out one more time because this is so important. When we move away from this, we've moved away from what it means to be a Christian, the activity of a Christian. And the reason we have to be really clear about that is because the Bible says in the last days, there will be those who have a form of godliness. So outward, outwardly, they look like they may be a Christian. They may tell you a Christian. They're the form of that, but, but inwardly, they're denying the power of God. And what that means is the transforming work of Jesus Christ. So that's why it, Jesus is really clear about go and make disciples. And the work that you work, the object of your work is to bring people into a place where they want to follow Jesus. And a true born-again believer will want to follow Jesus. But we all know that it's easy to take our eyes off the goal, off the prize. It's easy to be distracted in regards to the things of the world. And so we need to be reminded of that. I need to be constantly reminded of that. And so here we are, and we're remembering that we need to go and we need to focus on making 
disciples. And so at this point, we have to ask our, ourselves a question. Has, has something got in the way or taken us away from this passion of making disciples? Have we been distracted by many things? Have we been preoccupied with our, our own lives and the things that we're doing? Have, have we lost this? And, and if we have, I'm just just praying and desiring that we had all just come back to this essential point of making disciples. As we do that, we have to ask the question, so what do I do? What do you mean make disciples? And there's, there's so many vehicles that we have to do that. I, the main thing is that the gospel is the initial point of that. But, you know, whether there's so many ways we can do this, but it always has to be in our mind. But it's, you know, we can support works that do this. We can stir up our gifts. We're to stir up our gifts within the body of Christ to do this. We're to reach out to our neighbors. We're to do good works for people that would point to Jesus. They're, they're just, if we, if we have this mindset... There, there's endless amount of opportunities for us. But we have to get going, and we have to see that's what's more important than anything else. So when he says make disciples, notice what he says next. He says of all the nations. And that's so important because today we're another kind of a teaching or philosophy of the world that we're getting that's, uh, trying to convince people away from the gospel is that the gospel's only good for white European people. And the gospel came from Europe and you have a King James Bible and those type of, you know, the thing is, you know where the fastest growing churches are today? They're not in white places. Not, white places are declining. It's It's in places in Africa and it's in, uh, China, it's in um, Iraq. This is where the gospel's exploding. But the thing is, the gospel is good for everybody. It's not discriminant. And we live in a time where we're being told that the, the gospel is a way to suppress people, hold people down, and it's for white people to keep everybody in check. Do you know Jesus is from the Middle East and Jewish and but see, these are these philosophies we have to be so careful about. I, here's one of my favorite scenes in the Bible. Revelation 7, 9. It's a heavenly scene. And it says, I looked up and behold a great multitude, which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne before the Lamb. This is the church, right? It's all people, all lands, all places. And we need to look for every opportunity to support works of the gospel, to participate in works of the gospel so that the work of the gospel continues to reach people. But watch this. He says, now part of the great commission in making disciples is to baptize them in the name of, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So where does baptism come in? This is the Great Commission. And what baptism is, it's an outward sign of an inward reality. 
So basically, like I mentioned before, if someone you know, today comes forward and says, I want to receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and I pray for them, they don't turn it like, they, I can't see that they really like turn into a different person. But see, what baptism does, and this is why this is so crucial and important not to overlook, because it's a moment where a person is saying, I choose to follow Jesus, and I want everybody to know about it. It's making a distinction. Sort of like if, if you got married, I did a, a wedding on Friday night, and what if those people who got married didn't want anybody to know about it? What if they didn't wear their rings and, you know, somebody would ask them about it? Well, I don't know that person. <laughs> I thought you got married. No, I didn't get married. But see, to make this public proclamation is important. In Matthew 10, 32, it says, Whoever confesses me before men, him will I also confess by, before my Father who is in heaven. And whoever denies me before men, I will deny him before my Father in heaven. So that's why we do baptism. The baptism is a picture of a person saying, I have died to myself, and now I'm alive to Jesus Christ. And it's doing it publicly, and it's showing everybody and making this distinction, this is who I am now. Now imagine doing that in Iraq, in places in Africa, in China, and making this public proclamation. That takes a little different feel and adds a little different weight, doesn't it? So if you haven't been baptized and you're truly a believer, you need to. Baptism doesn't save you, but it solidifies your willingness to say, you know what, for me, I'm a Christian and there's no apology for it and this is who I am now. That's why we do that. And so let's finish with this last little part, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. So there's this, so this is where the significance of true obedience to the Lord. When we become born again now, we have a desire to actually obey God. This is another litmus test. If we don't have a desire to obey God, there's something wrong. And that doesn't mean we all perfectly obey. We're, we're all, none of us are perfect. All of us mess up all the time. But the point is, and I like to point this out, it's not perfection, but it's direction. When you become born again, your whole direction of your life changes. And if you're going in the same direction that you're going with no change, after you were born again, then you may not be born again because something happens and you have new desires and things change in your heart. And so that, that desire to want to be taught how to walk with God. So that's, that's what we're called to do. We're called to make disciples and we're called to baptize people and we're called to teach them how to obey God. And this is a major function of the church, teaching people to obey God. And the best part about it, Jesus says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. 
And so that should give us all the power and the confidence that we need moving forward. It's the presence of Jesus in the midst of our proclamation and work in the gospel that makes it so amazing. He's right there working with us. So you think about it like this. The whole message in the Bible is God wants to reach people. And it comes to where he sent his son to reach people. And his son died and rose again. Now he's saying, I'm going to ascend to heaven, sit at the right hand of my father. And now this is your job. This is up to you. This is the function of the church. And he says, and as you do that, don't ever worry about a thing because I'm going to be with you always. And I know everything I said today is the reason in 2004 I came here to plant a church. And man, after all those years, the thing, if God was not with me, we would not be here. I would not be here. Nothing would be here. You wouldn't be here. Nothing would be here. God has sustained us, provided for us, took care of everything for us through every season and every difficulty and every trial. And so we need to remember that. That is, if we'll just go, he will be there with us. I want to finish with a man named William Sangster. He was a evangelical Methodist minister in London at the Westminster Central Hall Church from 1939 to 1955. William Sankster was well known for preaching the gospel, but he also got muscular dystrophy, a terrible disease. And one Easter morning, he woke up and he didn't have a voice. And he said, how terrible to wake up Easter morning and have no voice to shout, he is risen. Far worse to have a voice and not want to shout. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, man, for your word. It's convicting, it's encouraging, it's sometimes it's like surgery for our heart. And we need to hear this, but I hope, Lord, that we will take this call to heart. And I know, Lord, it's so easy to be distracted in regards to our thing and what we're doing and life. And man, it's so easy to get distracted from the gospel. But Lord, I pray that we just come back to a new new proclamation in our life, that we would today, we would say, Lord, here I am, send me, Lord. That we would truly say, Lord, I want to go. That we would, like Isaiah, say, here I am, send me. And I pray as you're here today that you would just have a willingness to, to go wherever, whenever, however, it wouldn't matter, but that you would ask God to send you somewhere whether that be into one of the ministries here, whether that be into uh, our neighborhood, whether that be into uh, doing something at our workplace or whatever it is, whether it be going across the continent, who knows, Lord, but you say to go. And I'm sure thankful for those who have answered that call. I'm sure thankful for those who have gone like Hudson Taylor, have gone from... England to China. I'm sure glad for people like D. Martin Lloyd-Jones who left 
the uh, being a physician and left and went in to go into the ministry full time. I'm sure thankful for the um, people like George Mueller who went and started orphanages and ministered to thousands of thousands of orphans. Lord, I'm so thankful for Jim Elliott. He went to the Anka Indians to minister and lost his life doing that. And I'm so thankful for his wife, Elizabeth Elliott, who after they killed him, they, she actually went back and ministered the gospel to them, Lord. And, um, and so many, so many more, Lord. But I'm so thankful for those who have went and who have saw the Great Commission and made it their own. And I pray that for our church, Lord. I pray that now. And I, I pray, Lord, that we would just simply now say, Lord, here I am. Send me. Whatever it is, Lord, I don't care. Send me. And I want to pray for anybody else here that is, has never been born again, never received Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I pray now that you would receive him, that you would cry out to him, that you would ask him to forgive you, ask him to have mercy on you. Now's the time. Jesus loves you. And he demonstrated his love by dying on the cross for you. And so, Lord, we thank you. Bless these people here. Bless those who are listening. We love you, God. Let's all stand and worship the Lord. I'm going to ask Rob and Val to come up front. They're going to be up here to pray for any of you. If you pray to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, just come forward as as they're up here and just ask them to pray for you. But if you have any other prayer needs, whatever it is, they're going to be there. Come up as we sing this last song. God bless you guys. And let's just, uh, let's worship like Revelation chapter nine. I see a lot of tribes, tongues, and nations here. So let's worship the Lord. God bless you guys.